Welcome back to Financial Flyby. First, for some disclaimers. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations. Individuals should always consult their own financial advisor or tax advisor regarding their specific financial situation before acting on any information provided. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Genius Wealth Management, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. And now on to Financial Flyby. Welcome back to Financial Flyby. It is... November 8th, 2018, and we saw a couple changes in the market this week. Patrick, you want to go over a couple things? Yeah, Brian. Um, the main thing that we saw was our technical indicators have flipped back to the point where the offensive team is on the field. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what we can do now that maybe we, we couldn't do before? So basically before... This was probably going back to October 5th when defense took the field. Uh, we were trying to sell things that were underperforming the market and we were hanging on to our, our winners. We we're still holding on to those number one seeds. Uh, now, as the market's flipped and offense is on the field, we are still selling the stocks that are, are lagging the market and sectors that are lagging the market, but we're not keeping that money in cash. We're taking that money and we're gonna be putting it to work in the winning sectors that we still see is outperforming because our underlying process is still the same where if we have something that has done well in the past we think it will continue to do well and that kind of thought process is what drives our our investment criteria the other thing that happened this week patrick do you want to touch on anything that i just mentioned or do you want to go into the other big events of the week no i would the only thing i would add to that is just on the high level is again keeping the same analogy as the offensive team has the field so we can run our offensive plays. Before last week, when we talked, the defensive team was on the field so we couldn't run offensive plays. So we now have the ball. We can run, you know, plays to basically score the ball, whereas before we were running plays just to um, preserve the ball. So... That indicator flipped on the 6th. It was the day before the election that we actually saw the, the indicator that we typically follow flip to the 6th. And then the election happened. And we all know what happened with the election. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, this, the, the, the Democrats took control of the House. The Republicans retained control of the Senate, actually picked up a few additional seats, which... I believe, for mo- for all intents and purposes, the that was what was expected to actually happen. You know, I don't I don't know if there obviously people had different potential scenarios, but the general consensus was Democrats would get control of the House, Republicans would retain the Senate. Yes, we got the election results, and there were some changes there that happened with that election result. On top of that, we are heading into a very strong time frame for the market typically, November 1st through the end of April. That six-month period has historically proven to be a pretty solid performance for the market. I know that doesn't mean it's going to happen again. Nothing is set in stone, but that old adage, sell in May and go away, uh, it also means that you need to come back at some point, and that point is typically November 1st. So we're going into a strong six-month period. We just got the election results. Those election results happen to be a split House and presidency. And I think Patrick might want to go over what what that looks like as well. Yeah, I have some results or some 
um, <clears throat> historical numbers from S&P, FactSet, uh, Merrill Lynch, and another uh, U.S. quant strategy. And they show going back to 1928 uh, when there was a Republican president and Congress was all Republican, so both the Senate and the House, that actually produced the worst annualized investment returns for the S&P 500. Um, if we look at what we have now, which is a Republican president and a split in Congress, there was seven years where we had that going back to 1928, and the average annual return for the S&P 500, 12%, so not too, too bad. There's a you know few other permutations of that, but I guess the point is is that um, kind of this gridlock in Washington won't maybe be the worst thing for the market, right? So you said all Republicans was the worst? Correct. That doesn't mean that we are leaning one way or the other. Which one no, I'm not for. making a political statement. <laughs> but what was the best? I'm actually curious because I don't know what the stat is. So what was the best performing outcome for the market going back? What did you say, till 1950? 1928. 1928. Was a Democratic president with a split in Congress. And actually, a Democratic president with a Republican Congress was essentially almost the same. So what was that? What was the annual return? 15% and 16%. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. I guess the, the thing that I take away from that is that um, when there's kind of that division, more than likely it means not much gets done and the market hates uncertainty. And when there's a, more ability to get things done, that could potentially mean more changes, more things can happen that we don't currently know. Whereas, it, like I said, when there's that gridlock in Washington, Chances are it's going to be hard for any new legislation, any big sweeping changes to happen because you have opposing parties with different views on how the country should be run. And that means that the market could kind of turn its eyes onto something else. All right, great. So we've got offense on the field. We've got a good split with the government, the change for this week. So probably the last thing we should go over is how much the tax code has changed. With Trump taking office, he put forth the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that went into effect for 2018, and there were a lot of changes to the tax code, right? I just came back last week from my annual continuing ed, where they covered a lot of these things. They clarified a lot of things that I would say were maybe areas of ambiguity. Um, but you're right, there. this is the biggest change that we've seen in a number of years. So with these changes, what should people expect? The main thing that I walked away with and even the people that were presenting, you know, the instructors at the continuing ed class is that taxes are maybe not as cut and dry as what they used to be in the sense that if a client were to call our office and say, hey, Patrick, if I do this, what's the tax ramifications going to be? It's not something that Maybe in the past we could say it's, it's you know, this is the tax to expect on it. There's a lot of different moving parts that go into this. I thought the whole point of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act was to cut it down to one page and to simplify everything. That's how they present it, but sometimes the truth is, is different. So do you think it's more difficult now 
than it was prior to this getting passed? For business owners, absolutely. What about for individuals? If you were easy before, you're probably not not any. It's not probably any change. You know, I don't know if it got any easier or any harder. But if it was a simple, I have one W two and maybe I own a house or something like that. Is it is it the same level of complexity? Yeah. But for someone that owns a business now, with some of the business deductions and things that were deductible before that are no longer deductible, I think it's a lot. There's a lot of changes that go on. And I say business owners, but you know, you had someone that maybe owned a rental property. They sold that rental property now. That rental property, even though you don't think of it like being a business owner, you were a business owner when you ran that rental property. So it's not just someone that's saying, hey, I get, you know, all my income comes on a 1099 because I'm self-employed. So there's a lot of moving parts. Even though it's one page, supposedly one page, tax returns, that was kind of the claim to fame, you think it's gotten harder, and at least this year people should go talk to someone. Yeah, I think that this is a year that really very few people should probably still continue to do it themselves, whether that's on paper or via TurboTax. Just having a professional probably prepare your return this year, especially, I mean, almost 100% if you're a business owner, um, having a professional prepare that return. And then you can use it as a template going forward, but these rules that have come down the pipeline in terms of the changes... They're way too complex to try to take a stab at it this year. More than likely, I just feel like you're going to make a mistake. It's also interesting. There's a lot of different rules for different professions. Like real estate agents might have a different sort of filing than investment professionals, than accountants. Then there are like cutout rules for specific specific subsects of employers, right? Yeah, they're each they're, they kind of they kind of carved out these these different. Um, you don't have to go into too much detail. I'm not asking you to. I'm just yeah. No, there's like so many changes to this that the details are. And that's just one area, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of other things too. But you're right. I mean, if you're a physician, you could get the deduction, or you could not. If your income's over a certain threshold, you could be entitled to the deduction. You could not. So it's a lot of different, like I said, moving parts. Than, than what you'd think. And again, when it came out, we, we kind of knew some of the high-level overviews of how it's supposed to look, but there was questions, and some of those questions have been clarified for us, and they were things that I would say logically maybe didn't make sense if you just read the letter of the law, how you would interpret it normally. But Is it still changing, or do you think it's done? No, I think it's done. But again, like anything, tax code and tax law, is there's always a level of ambiguity in some sense of it. So until the IRS comes out and says, yes, this, no, that, you know, we'll figure that out. I mean, the best example I'd give you is, do you remember maybe 10 years ago they had the first-time homebuyer's credit? Yeah. I think it was, what, eight grand? Right. The first iteration of that, what people came out and did was they were buying a house maybe in their three-year-old's name because the three-year-old wasn't a first-time home buyer. Nice. So people were getting that money because uh, you didn't qualify for it if you had owned a house in any of, like, I think it was three years prior. So they were buying a house in their three-year-old's name. I well, like that. IRS came out the next year and said, yeah, 
uh, we're not going to allow that anymore. So if you're claimed as a dependent on someone's tax return, you don't qualify. And I think you also had to be over the age of 18, maybe. You know, it's, it's tax code. It's, it's meant to be um, maneuvered around, and they kind of come out later and say, well, we're going to change how we interpreted this or interpreted that. Interesting. All right, great advice. Talk to a tax preparer this year. And that's Financial Flyby. We will catch you guys next week. Thanks.